Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, January 10th, 2023. Uh, There's a couple of anniversaries. On January 9th, 1822, Prince Pedro of Portugal, who was the Brazilian regent for his father, King João VI, uh, rejected an order from Portugal to dissolve Brazil's government uh, and return home. This essentially kicked off a series of events that led to Pedro's coronation as Emperor Pedro I of Brazil in October of 1822 uh, and subsequently the Brazilian War of Independence. Uh, On January 9th, 1916, uh, this is the end of the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, There's a piece about this on the website, so I won't go into um, too much detail here, but uh, basically the Allies uh, undertook a uh, multi-pronged operation with the intention of seizing the Dardanelles Straits uh, or the Dardanelles Strait uh, in between the, the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Uh, they didn't plan this very well and they didn't manage it. Their officers didn't, uh, didn't manage it very well in the field. And the Ottomans, uh, who had some German help, but it was primarily the Ottomans, uh, with the uh, particular intervention of a lieutenant colonel named Mustafa Kemal, uh, the future Ataturk, the future founder of the Republic of Turkey, uh, really made his name in in this battle. He was uh, all over the place, kind of preventing uh, the Allies from from coming ashore. They were unable to do little more than uh, establish beachheads, and then spent the next eight and a half months, kind of as was typical for World War World War One, sending their enlisted men uh, into a meat grinder in the hopes that something would give, uh, but the bodies just kept piling up, and finally they had to to abandon the campaign. On January 9th, 1917, uh, the Battle of Rafa ended, with the UK defeating the last Ottoman defenders in Egypt. Uh, Ottoman mark, uh, Rafa excuse me, marked the end of the Sinai portion of the Sinai-Palestine campaign in World War I. It cleared the way, the victory cleared the way for the, the Brits to uh, move out of Egypt into the Levant. Uh, this campaign would, of course, end with the capture of Aleppo in October 1918, which was uh, right around the time the Ottomans decided uh, they didn't want to fight the war anymore and surrendered. Uh, On January 10th, in the year 49 BCE, Julius Caesar made crossing the Rubicon a thing by literally crossing the Rubicon River, marching his army toward Rome, which was something that Roman generals just simply did not do. Uh, He took this action because he feared that he would be prosecuted by his political opponents upon his return from the city and felt like the army, felt that the army was his best leverage against that. Uh, The act, of course, kicked off a civil war primarily between Caesar and Pompey. Uh, Pompey fighting on the side of the traditionalists in the Roman Senate, uh, and, uh, you know, more or less was the death knell uh, for the Roman Republic. Uh, And on January 10th in the year 1475, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Vaslui, uh, which is uh, an engagement between Moldavia, Stephen III, uh, the ruler of Moldavia, and the Ottomans. Uh, Stephen took a very outmanned and certainly, uh, I want to say outgunned, although guns were only starting to be used at this point in history, but uh, out, uh, let's say, classed uh, in almost every way, army, uh, and lured the Ottomans, who were commanded by a general uh, named Suleiman Pasha, uh, on behalf of Mehmed the Conqueror, but Mehmed the Conqueror was not there uh, for this battle. He lured them into um, a trap. He 
got them trapped in a valley while he controlled the high ground all around them and and really decimated this much larger and presumably stronger Ottoman army. Uh, this battle was fought over who got to control the region known as Wallachia uh, and particularly the uh, region known as uh, Bessarabia, which is uh, kind of around the, the Danube and where it empties out onto the Black Sea, very important, valuable, uh, strategic a place. Um, and it wound up being a little bit inconclusive because Mehmed eventually, uh, in response to this battle, got quite angry and led personally a, a very large army into Moldavia uh, the next year that forced Stephen uh, to kind of come to, to some peace. Uh, although, uh, again, they kind of contested this region for a while until Stephen finally, with Moldavia being as outmanned as it was, accepted uh, vassalhood to the Ottomans and, and started paying tribute to Constantinople. But for a time, uh, you know, in this one one battle, these very, uh, you know, uh, overwhelmed Moldavians were able to fend off what was probably the strongest army, or at least one of the strongest armies in Europe at the time. So uh, interesting engagement. Again, uh, there's a piece about this at the, at the website if you want to check it out. On to the news. In Yemen, the U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet says says it interdicted a boat carrying a bit over 2,000 rifles on a route that would have taken it from Iran to northern Yemen on Friday. It's inferring that those weapons were being shipped to the Houthis. Uh, this is certainly a reasonable inference that, if true, is not great news from the perspective of restoring a ceasefire in Yemen. Uh, the country hasn't seen any major fighting since the previous ceasefire expired in October, but one assumes the Houthis aren't arming themselves in preparation to go, say, quail hunting. Uh, by the by, according to Oxfam, weapons that the U.S. and U.K. supplied to the pro-government coalition, i.e. to Saudi Arabia, killed at least 87 Yemeni civilians between January 2021 and February 2022. Uh, but I'm sure it's different somehow when we do it uh, than when the Iranians do it. Uh, just Let's just take that as a given and move on. Uh, in Israel-Palestine, uh, there's a piece on Local Call, which is uh, an Israeli publication, uh, from Oren Ziv, who predicts that Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir's recent move to ban the Palestinian flag, we talked about that in yesterday's newsletter, will backfire. Uh, Ziv writes, more than anything, the directive illustrates the Israeli right's fear of any symbol that seeks to remind it that, despite Israel's best efforts, the Palestinian people refuse to disappear and no amount of repression will help. Palestinians who live under colonialism, occupation, and apartheid won't go quietly into the night. On the contrary, one can assume that Ben Gvir's directive will lead to the opposite result, more flags in the public space at the cost of increased police violence and arrests. On to Asia, an Armenian prime minister in Armenia, I guess, Armenian prime minister Nikol Pashinyan announced on Tuesday that his country will not host the Collective Security Treaty Organization's 2023 Unbreakable Brotherhood military exercises. That's, I assume, an ironic name. Uh, this contradicts a Russian statement to that effect earlier this month. The Russians said, uh, yeah, Armenia is going to be hosting these uh, these exercises this year. As far as I know, there's been no comment from Moscow on this except to say that it is going to clarify that earlier announcement. Uh, Pashinyan didn't stop with the CT CSTO announcement, uh, however. He went on to express concern over the performance of Russian peacekeepers who are supposed to be monitoring the ceasefire that ended the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war 
war, but appear to have done next to nothing as the Azerbaijani government has effectively blockaded the Lachin Corridor, which connects Karabakh to Armenia. Uh, Pashinyan has, over the past several weeks, increasingly voiced frustration with Russia's approach to the peacekeeping mission, which seems primarily concerned with not alienating Azerbaijan and only secondarily concerned with actually keeping the peace. He suggested replacing the Russians with an international peacekeeping force, which is an idea Moscow would undoubtedly reject. Um, but I would say directly contradicting this Russian government uh, statement about the CSTO exercise is probably the most explicit statement of frustration that Pashinyan has made uh, yet. Uh, in Afghanistan, sort of Afghanistan, I guess, uh Christine Abizaid, who's the director of the U.S. National Counterterrorism Center, told a conference audience on Tuesday that there is still no indication that al-Qaeda has named a successor to the presumably deceased Ayman al-Zawahiri, who by all accounts was killed in a U.S. drone strike back in Kabul, or in Kabul back in July. Uh, whether that means the group actually hasn't named a successor or just hasn't publicized the successor uh, is unclear. Uh, an Egyptian who goes by the name Saif al-Adal is thought to be next in l- the line of succession in al-Qaeda. But there's a good deal of uncertainty as to his identity. There may be at least two Saif al-Adals running around uh, in al-Qaeda. It's unclear. Uh, and it's believed that he's currently the one who is likely to succeed Zawahiri. is currently in Iran, which could hinder his ability to actually lead whatever is left of al-Qaeda's organization. Uh, so who knows? Uh, In China, the Chinese government on Tuesday announced that it is suspending the issuance of short-term visas to South Korean and Japanese nationals in retaliation for restrictions those countries have placed on Chinese travelers. Several countries, including the two in question here, are requiring mandatory COVID testing for Chinese arrivals out of concern over the recent spread of the pandemic within China. The Chinese government has similar mandatory testing policies in place for foreign nationals arriving there, but apparently feels that these requirements that are being placed on the Chinese travelers are beyond the pale uh, and warrant a response. Uh, in Africa, in Gabon, uh, Gabonese President Ali Bongo Ondimba named a new prime minister on Tuesday. He appointed Alain Claude Billier Binize uh, to replace Rose Christiane Osuka Raponda. Uh, she's been named as Bongo's new vice president. Uh, Osuka Raponda isn't replacing anybody uh, as she moves up, uh, as the VP office has been vacant since 2019. She is also the first woman to serve in that role in Gabon's history. Uh, I'm a bit unclear as to whether this actually constitutes a promotion. Uh, Gabonese vice presidents are constitutionally tasked with assisting the president. They can stand in for the president in certain ceremonies or when the president can't uh, go on a trip or something like that. Uh, But they are not next in the line of succession. That falls to the president uh, of the Gabonese Senate. So I'm unclear whether this office is actually more... Uh, desirable than the the premiership or not, who knows. Uh, In Nigeria, unspecified gunmen attacked a security patrol in Kaduna State on Monday, killing at least 12 members of a paramilitary police force uh, along and uh, local militia volunteers. Uh, There's no indication uh, as to responsibility, but Kaduna State has been subject to bandit violence, uh, and there is some jihadist presence there as well, or there's believed to be some jihadist presence there as well. Uh, of course, banditry and jihadist violence are not mutually exclusive, to be clear, uh, so it could be either, both, or something else altogether.
in Ethiopia, Tigray People's Liberation Front fighters have begun surrendering their heavy weaponry to federal Ethiopian forces under the terms of the peace deal the two sides negotiated back in November. Uh, This disarmament comes well after the deadline by which it was supposed to have taken place. Uh, But I think in this case, uh, the adage better late than never uh, would certainly apply. the handover is taking place in the Tigrayan town of Agole. Uh, it's being monitored by representatives of the Horn of Africa's Intergovernmental Authority on Development Block. On to Europe uh, and Ukraine. After four days of heavy fighting, it would appear that Russian uh, or really Wagner Group uh, paramilitary forces have entered the town of Solodar in Ukraine's Donetsk Oblast. Uh, Beyond that, the situation is unclear. The Russians claim they've taken the town, uh, but Ukrainian officials are insisting that their forces are still defending it. And there are reports, including from Wagner Group owner Yevgeny Prigozhin, of ongoing uh, fighting. Solodar lies near a major salt mine that is probably also, at this point, under Russian control uh, and has some commercial and military, I would say more the former than the latter, value. Uh, Control of the town would also put the Russians a step closer to seizing the nearby city of Bakhmut, which has been an objective of theirs for several weeks now. Uh, Elsewhere, foreign policy is reporting that the Turkish government has since November been sending dual-purpose improved conventional munitions to Ukraine. Uh, These DPI-CMs are artillery-fired cluster bombs. They're intended to target tanks and other armored vehicles. This is not the first weapon that Turkey has supplied to Ukraine. That would probably be their Bayraktar drones. But it is interesting to watch Ankara try to sort of walk a tightrope between joining its NATO allies in supporting Ukraine and in trying, uh, on the one hand, and trying not to alienate Moscow. On the other hand, uh, this particular weapon is also somewhat troubling in that um, cluster bombs, and, and these cluster bombs, specifically DPICM, uh, tend to kill civilians with alarming frequency, often long after the fighting is over, as uh, they don't they often don't explode when they're initially fired. Uh, go figure. Some 110 states, which is a group that unsurprisingly does not include the United States, uh, are party to the Convention on Cluster Munitions, which is a 2008 treaty banning the production, use, and transfer of cluster weapons because of the threat that they pose uh, to civilians. In the Americas, in Brazil, uh, Brazilian Supreme Court Justice Alexandra de Moraes uh, reportedly issued arrest warrants on Tuesday for Anderson Torres, the now former head of public security for the Federal District of Brasilia, uh, and Fabio Augusto, the now former commander of the district's military police unit, uh, both in connection with Sunday's riot by Jair Bolsonaro supporters in the Brazilian capital. Allegations have been swirling about possible police collusion with the rioters, with these two men at the top of the list because of their apparent pro-Bolsonaro sympathies. Of the 1,500 or so people authorities have now detained over the riot, some 600 are believed to have been released on humanitarian grounds due to things like age, family status, etc., while 527 of them have been formally arrested. Uh, more arrests, uh, including of officials and of people suspected of financing the riot are likely to come down the road. There's a piece at the New Republic uh, from historian Andre Pagliarini, which uh, I would recommend uh, you could check out uh, in terms of the uh, that discusses the implications 
uh, of Sunday's riot. I'll just read you a paragraph here. Rather than a fight over a failed presidential bid, a stolen election, or anything so localized, the struggle that seems to be unfolding in the minds of so many anti-Lula fanatics is whether democracy itself is worth preserving if the left is allowed to win elections. In last year's election, Bolsonaro earned more than 58 million votes to just over 60 million for Lula. That's Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. Uh, what if Bolsonaro was a dam channeling the right-wing authoritarian impulses of his supporters into former formal government channels? With him gone, the dam has broken, and those anti-democratic energies are spilling out into the open with the former president doing nothing to stem the flow. Pagliarini's piece is, is really a comparison uh, on some level of the uh, riots on Sunday with the January 6, 2021 riots in Washington, D.C. by Trump supporters. Uh, his argument is that it was both... Uh, less serious because nobody was home uh, on Sunday, uh, whereas on January 6th, of course, Congress was in session and there was a real chance that people could, uh, you know, attack congressmen, uh, congresspersons. Uh, And on the other hand, maybe more serious because even that riot on January 6th was about overturning an election and there was still this sort of basic kind of functioning within some semblance of a democratic process. Uh, This seems to have been nothing more than an open bid for a military coup. Uh, And so as Pagliarini writes, there is a sense that maybe these Bolsonaro supporters have just given up on democracy altogether, which, which could be very troubling moving forward. In Peru, authorities have imposed a nighttime curfew for at least the next three days in southern Peru's Puno region amid ongoing protests over the ouster of former President Pedro Castillo last month. At least 17 people were killed amid heavy protests in Puno on Monday, and one police officer was killed and another wounded in what authorities termed an ambush in the city of Juliaca on Tuesday. Uh, at least 40 people, most of them protesters, have died since Castillo's removal in uh, protest scenarios. Southern Peru was probably Castillo's strongest base of support, which can be attributed to the region's relatively poor and relatively indigenous population, so the unrest there has been particularly heavy. In Colombia, Colombian Vice President Francia Marquez said on Tuesday that her security team found an improvised explosive device near her family's home in the village of Yolombo. Uh, She's characterized the bomb as evidence of an assassination attempt, which seems like a fair characterization. Uh, But that said, details surrounding the device and its discovery appear to be in somewhat short supply uh, at this point. In Mexico, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador hosted U.S. President Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Tuesday for the Three Amigos Summit. Still can't believe that's what they call it, involving the leaders of the three USMCA member states. They appear to have made some rhetorical headway on plans to boost regional manufacturing and strengthen supply chains, particularly with respect to the semiconductor industry. But it sounds like their dispute over AMLO's subsidy program for Mexico's state-owned energy firms is still a source sore spot. Foreign energy firms view those subsidies as an unfair competitive advantage. The U.S. and Canadian governments, among others, have pressured AMLO to adjust the policy, often using, I would say, trumped-up climate change fears uh, as the basis for their their concern. Uh, There's no indication uh, coming out of Tuesday's meeting that the parties made any progress on resolving that dispute. 
in Haiti, the last 10 senators who had remained in Haiti's parliament saw their terms end on Tuesday. This leaves Haiti in the somewhat awkward position of having no remaining elected officials in any part of the national government. Uh, Haiti has not held an election since 2016, so that's the kind of thing that happens when you don't hold an election. Uh, appointed Prime Minister Ariel Henry continues to serve in a de facto dictatorial capacity. He's sort of uh, operating as head of government, head of state, with no checks at all. Uh, and while he's talked about organizing new elections, he has yet to actually take any concrete concrete steps in that direction. Uh, And there's no other functioning branch of government uh, at this point that could pressure him on that issue. Uh, Even if Henri were intent on holding elections, Haiti's dismal security situation could make it impossible to actually do so safely. Uh, And finally, in the United States, responsible statecraft's William Hartung looks at the recent caterwauling over the possibility that the newly Republican-controlled House of Representatives might shave a bit off of the bloated U.S. military budget. I'll read you the first couple of paragraphs here. Writing for the Washington Post on Monday, Jennifer Rubin charged that the potential Freedom Caucus proposal to freeze federal spending at 2022 levels, which if implemented across the board, could wipe $75 to $100 billion in increased Pentagon spending included in the recent budget bill, could have, quote, serious national security ramifications. She then quoted American Enterprise Institute budget hawk Mackenzie Eaglin, who said such a proposal, quote, makes only authoritarians, despots, and dictators smile, end quote, Uh, adding, quote, it completely ignores the troops and is entirely the troops. Got it. Love the troops. Anyway, and it completely ignores the troops and is entirely divorced from strategic thought or the many and varied threats the country faces, end quote. Uh, Hartung continues, across the board, cuts are never the best way to reduce government spending. They mean cutting effective and wasteful programs in the same proportions instead of making smart choices about what works and what doesn't. But the idea that cutting up to $100 billion or more from the Pentagon one way or another uh, but the idea of cutting, excuse me, up to $100 billion or more from the Pentagon one way or the other should be up for discussion. And the idea that dictators worldwide are basing their decisions on whether the Pentagon budget is an enormous 70, $750 billion or an obscenely enormous $850 plus billion dollars uh, is ludicrous. What counts is having a clear strategy and a willingness to carry it out, not how many dollars one can spend or all too often waste. Uh, I think Hartung is correct here. Uh, $750 billion, if you can't get it done for that amount, I don't know how much more uh, you could possibly expect. Uh, but I would say it probably doesn't matter because it's highly unlikely uh, that these cuts, this is the kind of thing that you talk about when you're trying to get elected or, or trying to rev up the base, and then when you're actually in office, uh, you don't follow through on and claim that you're you know, handcuffed by something. Suffice to say, I don't think they're going to happen uh, at all. So there's not much point uh, really to me in talking about them. Uh, on that note, uh, I know that's kind of a downer, but that's what we do around here. So on that note, I will say uh, thank you for reading slash listening to the newsletter. And um, thanks for subscribing. Those of you who are uh, free subscribers, or especially those of you who have made the jump to paid subscriptions, uh, I appreciate uh, you sticking with the newsletter and uh, making it possible for me to continue doing it. Uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.